And now we're going to read through 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How's everybody doing? It's it's spring. It feels like spring, right? All right. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I have to keep saying this. <laughs> I'm John. I'm one of the elders here. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to hang out and connect sometimes. So reach out. Let's jump in. So we are midway through what we're calling a, a liturgy mini-series. Kind of some background here. So we... we uh, we practice these things every week, these like little interruptions to our service. Um, these things, we, we do the call to worship, which Nikolai talked about last week. There's confession and the assurance of pardon. There's the Apostles' Creed. The end of the service, there's a benediction, which you might not have even noticed is there. Uh, there's the reading of the word. There's, there's all these different elements that we do week in and week out that form our liturgy. And it's easy uh, to kind of fall into just sort of vain repetition of those. It's easy for those liturgies just to become kind of a knee-jerk reaction to you hear somebody say um, the first line of it and you just drone it on. So our goal is we were praying through <clears throat> coming out of the Gospel of Mark and what to go through next is we reestablish sort of the, the value of this gathering after the craziness of last year and where everybody was all at. Um, we just felt like it was really important to spend some time, a few weeks, specifically looking at the elements that we practice here in our gathering and why they're important why we do them. They're not just, uh, we don't do them just for the sake of doing them, right? Um, so, it would help probably to define liturgy. I realize a lot of us did not grow up in a, a church that used that term probably, so it would be helpful to like clarify what that is. I think Nikolai did a good job with that last week. If you didn't, weren't here last week, 
Uh, I encourage you to go back, check out the podcast, check out YouTube, listen to it. Um, because that, that call to worship sort of sets the stage for all the rest of this for the next few weeks. The early church used the word liturgy to describe its various forms and acts of worship, the different ways that it practiced worship. For us today, it probably carries connotations of like a high church, Catholic, Anglican, uh, Presbyterian traditions. Um, For those of us who grew up in in a more loose, non-denominational environment, you might not know it, but we all practice different forms of liturgy. We just don't call it that. So there's, there's always, I've been involved in church ministry for a long time, there's always an order of service. There's always a structure in the way, even in the most loosey-goosey services, there's a way things happen. And we do that as a way, we just, a way to create a common thing that we can all grasp onto. If it was always changing, always never the same, it would be hard to actually figure out what we're doing. Um, liturgy originally meant a public work. It's kind of odd, actually, that this word got brought into the Christian uh, vernacular. It l- meant originally something accomplished by the community for the community. It was usually used to talk about a, a town bridge or a community well or a city wall, an activity that the community did together for the benefit of the community. Liturgy is something that we individually do. You're invited, possibly required to play a role, but it's not about you. It's about us together, collectively. It's about the community. Its purpose is therefore to benefit the entire community. Bridge building is is the, like, I think the the common way of understanding what liturgy is. And that's why when we think about like a regular order of service as a bridge built, this is a way for us to together cross into something collectively as we worship God. For us as disciples of Jesus, liturgy is the collective way that we practice our rhythms of discipleship. So those rhythms that we talked about, study it, hear it, apply it, live it. Collectively, when we come together, the rhythms that we do in a Sunday morning is the practicing, the outworking of the collective rhythms. You each have your own weekly, so to speak, rhythms, your own weekly liturgies, the way that you work out your discipleship with Jesus and with each other, right? When we come together on a Sunday morning, the elements that we do, the things we do are crafted to help you grow in your walk, to help you grow in your discipleship. It's the coming together of your individual liturgies. We want to be intentional about the things that we do together as a church. They're not just haphazard. We want the elements of our gathering to be fueling you as a disciple and your engagement with the mission of God. What we do here is to remind you of the gospel, 
refresh that mission inside of you and commission you to go back out onto the mission field. James K.A. Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, said, Liturgies aim our love to a different end precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. They aim our love, our affection, to a different end by training our hearts through our bodies. I think Nikolai was spot on last week when he said that uh, of the churches, the church's liturgies can for the most part, if not entirely, be summed up by the early church's practices from the book of Acts. So Acts 2.42 is what he, he referenced, and it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They all, all that we do on a Sunday morning can be summed up in there. Specifically this morning, we are going to be looking at the confession and assurance of pardon peace, which quite possibly is the most odd for some of us who've grown up in a, in a more non-denominational um, background. Confession is one of these things that we do on a Sunday morning that can be kind of unfamiliar. Is it, am, I, am I alone in that? Do you guys feel that? You there? For many of us, when we think of confession, we either think of a Catholic confessional booth or a criminal confessing their crime or our kids confessing something they did wrong it was a week and a half ago, I was in the office, I get a text message from Naomi, said Jethro, our four-year-old, needs to talk to you. And then I get a FaceTime call, and then I see my four-year-old sobbing, telling me that he threw the iPad and shattered it. That's confession. <laughs> Fortunately, thank God for insurance, we can get things fixed. <laughs> um, a lot of times, we church gatherings, the way that we do this, is structured around church leaders try to think, how can we fill the most seats? How can we keep people happy? How can we make this feel good? And if we're honest, let's face it, Publicly voicing our sins can be kind of awkward. Prayers of praise and hype, things that excite people, that, that's, that's kind of easy. But lament and confession is more likely to bum people out than it is to excite them. So the question is, why include something in our weekly rhythms, in our weekly uh, worship gathering, that's going to in inevitably dredge up painful memories of this last week, or possibly make us uncomfortable with the truths and with the reality of where we sit? That's the question. But the reality is, if we plan worship, if we plan our worship gatherings for consumers and not disciples, 
then human wisdom would say, we should just not even touch this. Let's not make people uncomfortable. But the reality is, we are not planning these services for consumers. You are not here to be consumers of a good that we produce, or of a service, or professional ministry. You are here as a collective group, a called-together group of disciples that are on mission with Jesus. You are not a community of consumers. Amen? I think that by looking at confession through a biblical lens, looking at corporate confession as something we will see it more beautifully uh, and even necessary as a, as a part of our corporate gathering. The concept of confession, the word confess, if you look it up in a Bible dictionary, Bible encyclopedia, it usually carries a common idea of an acknowledgement of something. To acknowledge. And sin, sin is, is, is one of those words that's like, it's a Bible word. We, we all kind of assume we know what it means. Sin, essentially, is to fail to live up to an expected standard. We sin by both omission, not doing what we should, or commission by doing what we shouldn't. So when we confess our sin, we are acknowledging the fact that we have failed to live up to the standard that we should. We're acknowledging that we failed to live to the standard. Let's take a look at a couple scriptures that give us some good examples. Psalm 51 is probably one of the best examples of private confession. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David, and I just want to read the whole thing. Psalm of David uh, that he wrote confessing his sin after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan uh, about his sin with Bathsheba. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my, my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in the truth and in the inward being, and, are, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones uh, that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will, 
I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing loud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and open my mouth, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God, sacrifices of God are, of, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. O oh God of Zion, in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Isn't that amazing? It is, uh, I think, one of the best examples of personal confession. This is, this is actually a great, when you are in your quiet time, when you're before Jesus dealing with your sin, that's a great place to go. Then in Nehemiah 9, this passage that we read earlier, I think we see one of the clearest examples of corporate confession. Psalm 51 was David's personal prayer. Nehemiah 9, we see this picture of the people of God corporately confessing their sins. The people of God are gathered together, responding to the public reading of Scripture, and they're confessing their sins corporately. What's happening here is some context. The post-exilic community, they've come out of Babylon. They've returned home. Nehemiah is the story that... They've, uh, so Ezra and Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the, the altar, the temple, and now the walls of Jerusalem. They're gathered together, and they hear the public reading of Scripture, and it cuts them to the heart. Nehemiah 8 is probably, I think it is the first example we have in Scripture of an expositional sermon. This is where they actually take the scripture, they explain it, they read it, they explain it, and the response is that the people are moved to corporate repentance, corporate confession. What comes after, they spend, what is the scripture, it says they, it's like a third of the day. Let's read it. Nehemiah 9, I know you already read it, but Nehemiah 9, starting verse 1. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and their iniquities with their father. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. And another quarter they made confession and worshipped their Lord, their God. When it comes, what comes after this corporate confession is one of the most beautiful retellings of the story of God and his, his faithfulness and his goodness and his kindness. You should read it. Read the rest of chapter 9 later on this week. They retell, remind themselves again of God's faithfulness and his goodness in response Even when his people are not faithful, God is faithful. 
There are many, many other examples of this type of corporate confession in the scripture. The phrase, we have sinned, occurs over 20 times in the Old Testament, most often in a gathered assembly. Numerous other examples. Second Chronicles 7.14, this, this is like the intercessor's passage. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Implied in this verse, in that humbling yourself, seeking his face, turning from your ways, implied is that you acknowledge your sin, you turn from it, and you seek God. Historically, confession has always been a part of Christian worship, of the way the church worshiped. The prayer of confession is one of the key elements, actually, that the reformers held on to after the medieval church. They recognized that it was not only traditional, but it had sound biblical roots. Going back into the first century, one of the earliest pictures we have of confession comes from uh, this document called the, the Didache, which is Greek, it just means the teaching. This is the practices of the early church. And they said, it says this, it says, confess your sin in church and do not go to prayer with a guilty conscience. This is the way of life. <laughs> little, this is the way. Confess your sin in church and do not go to prayer with a guilty conscience. Star Wars fans? <laughs> Let's listen again. Let's read again. Listen to the confession that we recite most weeks here. You guys okay? okay. Can we put that back on the screen, the con our confession? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against thee in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Next section. For the sake of of thy Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in thy will and walk in thy ways to the glory of thy name. Amen. The challenge, as with any liturgy, as with anything that we do regularly, is to not let these words become vain rituals. To not let these just be something that we recite out of like duty and not allow them to cut us. We should let those words sink in week in and week out. We should allow that to cause us to search. You'll notice that in this confession, which, which comes from the Book of Common Prayer, by the way, it's not something we just made up. This is, this is people been praying this prayer for a very long time. You'll notice that in this confession, 
It is not a confession of breaking some abstract law or contract. It is a sin against you. That's what it says. We, we have sinned against you, against God. This confession is more like a, a confession of a breakdown in a marriage than it is a failure to uphold your end of a contract. Our sin, when, when we sin, it represents a break in trust, a violation of trust. And at the root of wrong actions, at the root of our sin, the confession recognizes our failure to love or to love well or rightly or in the right order. Sometimes it's just misordered. One thing we often forget about confession is that it is not, and I think I've touched on this already, but it's not first and foremost an individual activity. Psalms 51, there's, there's a time and a place for your individual confession. But remember, liturgy is something that we do together as a community. The liturgical elements, the things that we do in our gathering are designed to aid in your discipleship. They should publicly reflect the coming together of what you are already doing on a regular basis. So when we practice this, when we do this on a Sunday morning, the confession of sin is corporate. There's a distinct distinction between our daily prayers and this confession. When we gather on Sundays, the confession is done as a congregation. We confess our sin as a body. We seek God's forgiveness as a body. After all, we come to worship him. This is what Nikolai talked about last week. We're called together to worship as a body. There's definitely an individual aspect to confession. Don't get me wrong. You're, you're accountable for your own stuff. But together as a body, the emphasis is on the body when we do this together. And corporate confession owns up to our own collectively complicity in all sorts of evils. All sorts of things that disorder the world and corrupts God's good creation. When we confess on Sundays, we're acknowledging our failure to, to follow through with the original call as God's people to be image bearers on the earth. We're acknowledging that we have not represented God well, and we want to do better. We have not properly imaged the all-loving, all-caring, merciful God. There's an element of this corporate confession that is also communal. It pierces into our gloomy, self-centered introspection, and it reminds us that you're not in this alone. There is an entire congregation, 
an entire body that is also struggling in this thing we call dying to sin, taking up our cross. We're also all going through this. Not one of us has it figured out. We are in this as a community. In his book, Life Together, which if you haven't read it, it's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, highly recommend it, little book. Towards the end, he says, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. Even in a large gathering with lots of good activity, lots of good things, lots of uh, motion, a lack of confession means a lack of community. If we can't be real with each other, that we're all on a journey, we don't have this thing figured out, we don't have real community. If your brother and sister sitting next to you thinks that you've got your stuff together, they're not going to be, <laughs> there's not going to be real community. You guys have seen this, right? This is like normal stuff. When we live in fear of admitting to others what sins uh, weigh us down, Bonhoeffer says, we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners. And without acknowledging this, people will either be unwilling or unable to truly reach out to each other. This is what we, we as the church, as a community of faith, we are to bear each other's burdens. But if we don't know the burdens of each other, we can't bear them. Which brings us to confession and the gospel. The good news. Hopefully you will have noticed at this point that when we do this confession, there is always a reading of an assurance of pardon. There's always a second statement to follow. It goes like this. God has given ear to our confession, and God's face has shined on us, shined upon us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you and I are saved, saved from our sins, saved to our faithful Savior, whose steadfast love is gifted to us. We are not left at confession. This is a, a two-part conversation. We are reminded of the gospel. That's why I wanted to read this, this passage out of 1 John because I feel like it sets the stage so well. 1 John chapter 1 in a very poetic way, John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him, yet while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. This is the good news, guys. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But 
Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin, he is faithful. Not we are faithful, he is faithful. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. In, conf- in confession and assurance of pardon, we meet a moment where Christian worship runs counter to everything else that's happening outside of this, this gathering. All the rhythms outside of here, uh, they tend to talk. The rhythms outside tend to either nullify talk of guilt and responsibility by saying, you can do it, you can do it, you're amazing. Or they point out your failures without offering you any, any pardon or any way out. The world will either tell you to be self-confident, to believe in yourself, while refusing to recognize failure and guilt and sin. Those things, failure, guilt, sin, they're relegated to like negative energy and don't mess with my vibe. Don't mess up my self-esteem. The we-can-do-it confidence, it offers assurance without confession. The flip side of the we-can-do-it mantra is, I think, the push from most marketing, and it plays off your deep internal knowledge of your own lacks, your own faults, your own inabilities, your own failures, and it somehow transforms that into shame but not guilt. So they say, because now you're feeling shame, uh, they promise you not forgiveness or pardon, but an opportunity to correct it by buying their goods and services or doing this or doing that or reading this book. In a sense, the flip side is that it that seems to require confession, realize that you've got problems, but there's no promise of pardon or peace. And in contrast to both, this practice, confession and assurance, it immerses us in a weekly practice that reminds us of the fundamental fracture that we find ourselves in every day the consequences of our choice, and it forces us to be honest with God, honest with each other, to face up to the ways that we failed to be good husbands, to be good wives, daughters, sons, the ways that we failed to live out as the people of God, the church, to be a foretaste of the kingdom, that we failed to live as an image of, of the kingdom to come. 
This practice doesn't leave us in despair, though, and this is the beautiful thing. Rather, it gives us hope. It gives us assurance of forgiveness. And it reminds us that the curse of sin is being rolled back. There is a reordering of creation that has already broken out into the world through the work of the cross, through the person of Jesus, and through his body. And we are a gathering of his people in order to practice and to learn to live in the way of his coming kingdom. That's what discipleship is. We are training and being trained to be a kingdom kind of people, an image of the coming kingdom. In the meantime, we are witnesses. We point out, we live in light of that coming kingdom. The corporate confession of sin has been a staple for centuries, and if we lose our ability to confess sin corporately, we run the risk of assuming that the Christian life is just all about you. This practice, week in and week out, it draws us back, week in, week by week, into humility and holiness, into remembering God's faithfulness, remembering what God did and accomplished through Jesus on the cross. It reminds us, week in and week out, of the breathtaking reality of what God accomplished through the gospel, of what we have in assurance. On the cross, Jesus confessed, Father, forgive them. And in his resurrection, his prayer was confirmed. When we practice this, a prayer of corporate confession, we, don't, we shouldn't hear accusation or condemnation, but we should hear freedom. Freedom to both lament the not-yetness of this world, that we are waiting the coming kingdom, the coming king. Freedom to lament the inadequacy of ourselves, Freedom doesn't come just from worldly sorrows or worldly confession. It, comes, it doesn't come from trying to scrub ourselves with good works. You can't earn it. Freedom comes from confessing our sin to Jesus, who is able and faithful to forgive. This Jesus, he knew no sin. He was our perfect Passover lamb the perfect sacrifice, the perfect fulfiller of the law, the perfect propitiation. There was no need for him to humble himself before the Father. He stood in perfect union with the Father. But for your sake, for our sake, for our sake as a community, he did. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He did this both for our personal sin, but also for our corporate sin as a community, as a body. 
Scripture says that he became sin so that we might be free, so that he might free us to confess sin together so that we could have freedom in him. Amen. Worship team, come back up. I'm going to pray. I just encourage you this week to maybe as you as you gather with your group to to apply this practice. Try it. Try it. Try confessing your sin to each other. There's beauty in being open with your own lack and your own inability. It's okay that you don't have it all together. It's okay that you're not perfect. Your Instagram picture of who you are is not who you are, and it's okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of death. You took on the penalty that was due us. Jesus, we, we acknowledge that we need you. We are a people in desperate need of a savior. We are a people in desperate need of a kingdom. Jesus, I pray that you would help us as a community to be that kingdom people. That we would practice and live out the implications of the kingdom here and now. That day in and day out, we would live in light of the gospel. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.